following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Good morning, and what a blessing to be together with the saints. By God's grace, we join and experience His plan for us as we join together in this gracious act where we sing to God, and it speaks, a better word, to each other, the truth of the gospel as we encourage ourselves in the Lord, not in our own strength or the fact that we can make it through together somehow. It is in Christ, and so we praise God for that. Let's turn in your Bibles to Obadiah. If you're visiting with us, it's okay to look in the index. It's right next to Jonah, Uh, but yes, we are in Obadiah. This will be the last Sunday that we'll spend there, Um, the last part of the prophecy, kind of a recap, the big picture, the look of the prophecy, uh, and uh, then we'll continue on through the scriptures. Uh, as you're turning there, I just want to remember those that are home, that are, that are jumping in on live stream, we miss you, we desire that you'd be here, we love you, and we are praying for you, look forward to your soon return as well. Also, I just want to give those uh, who are here and at home as well a little schedule of what the rest of the summer looks like, uh, since this is the last week of Obadiah, I want to kind of give you a little bit of a plan for those that um, kind of look forward to different sermons. That doesn't give you an out. You can't like choose which sermon you're going to come to and which one you're not. And the, the, the point is to assemble and grow together. Uh, but let me give you a little idea what's going on. We'll finish this week in Obadiah, um, and then we will do two weeks on just some Christian disciplines. It's kind of a pastoral understanding of what it looks like to be walking through the Christian life. So some of the things that I've been thinking about and working through, I'm just going to bring up two subjects that I think will help us. The first one will be about knowing God through prayer and fasting, not something I I preach on often, fasting. We're going to spend some time understanding. The scriptures show us this as a wonderful Christian discipline, that we would know God through prayer and fasting. And then after that, we'll talk about a Christian posture of giving will be the next week. I mean, Jordan even just called us to, when we passed the plates, to have a heart of giving and he said, if you remember, he says this every week, actually, he's, it's more than just, you know, uh, putting it in the plate. There are other ways we give as well. And he doesn't only mean by that that we can give in the back or online, although you can do those things. He's talking about an overall life posture. The Christian lives our life to give back, recognizing what we have in God and that we would live as givers as well. So that'll be the next two weeks after this week. And then we'll have two men from our congregation uh, who will speak to us and preach the word the rest of July. So Caleb Coaston will come after that, and then Josh Stonehouse. Then for the month of August, if you've been here for a year or more, you know usually in August we do an elder series. So the four of us as elders will be speaking the same topic. We're going to go through um, the, the miracles of Jesus from the Gospels. Now, it doesn't mean we're going to cover all of them. We're just going to cover four different ones and seeing the perspective and giving us a flavor for that. So we'll look forward to that in the month of August. After that's through, we get to September finally, which means that we will start a new sermon series. So that kind of gets you through all of the rest of the summer, and we're excited to jump into the, the fall as well. So there's lots to look forward to. Again, that doesn't mean that you can choose which ones you want to come to and uh, the other ones you can't come to. We want to join together and worship God, both assembling and hearing the word preached. Let's go ahead and read Obadiah together. Um, I am going to read, starting in verse 1, I'll read the entire prophecy here. Again, if you're visiting with us, it's okay. It's only 21 verses, uh, but it will catch the whole thing together. So let me read Obadiah 1. This is the word of God. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. 
and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you've been destroyed, would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O T-man, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the, the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah and the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors, shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Let's pray together. Lord, as we look to this passage, we thank you for giving us your holy word. I simply pray that you'd open our hearts to obey, that we would see, we would hear, and we would respond. Lord, for those who do not know Jesus Christ today, whether they're listening in, whether they're here in this auditorium together, I pray that you would make them so uncomfortable they recognize that you are the only God and that they would respond in repentance and faith and love in a God who saves. For those of us who know Jesus, I pray that you would make us more like him today. Would you pour out your grace so that we would not be like our old man, 
not those that rebel against you constantly, but are being made more into the image of his dear son. I pray for help, God. I pray for help for me as I, sp- as I speak, but I pray for us as we respond Monday, Tuesday, throughout the week, God. Would you help us to obey? It's in your name we pray these things. Amen. Well, let me ask you to start a question here. Um, how do you live your Christian life? Well, that's, that's a simple question in one sense, but I, what I mean by that is, how do you live in light of the Almighty God whose gaze is constant, who never sleeps, who sees all and knows all? Do you live in the reality that all of our time and talents and money and abilities belong to God and he calls us to join him in using them uh, for his glory and for our good? Um, I don't know about you, but I think a lot more often I'm kind of like a teenager or um, a, a middle schooler who finally gets the freedom for his parents to let him stay home when they go out for a time. You probably know this scenario. Mom and dad are going to go do something, maybe for the entire day, and they have given the young person a chance to enjoy themselves, to stay home, and to make sure that they have a few different chores done, a little responsibility, but they're old enough to be able to take care of themselves and and, and use the house well and make sure that they actually stay alive. Uh, They tell them, though, that you have a few chores to do. I'm asking you to, you know, do the dishes. I'm asking you to make the bed. I'm asking you to vacuum the living room and to take out the trash. Just a few simple tasks I'm asking you to do. Other than that, you can do what you want to, I mean, within, within reason, of course. Uh, you know that you have some responsibility, but all you hear clearly is you can do what you want to with some responsibility and within reason. Now, some of you know this and have experienced something like this, whether it's in your own families uh, or perhaps you were the child. Uh, mom and dad leave for the day and the fun begins. I mean, you sleep in. Maybe you watch some movies. Maybe you make cookies for breakfast. I mean, maybe you, you, you read a book. You go outside and play with friends, neighborhood friends. Maybe a water fight. I mean, you are having a blast enjoying yourself. All the while, the chores that you were asked to do are being left undone. Um, but the time comes that you realize that mom and dad are going to come back within like 30 or 40 minutes. And you look at your watch and like, scratch that. It's like 15 or 20 minutes and they're going to come back. And all of a sudden, you have so much motivation and so much like, ability to get things done, it's, it's astounding. What used to take you an hour and a half now can get scrammed into, crammed into 15 minutes. And so you go about getting things ready, the panic sets in, and somehow we're going to get all this stuff done. Your threshold of ability is right there, maybe 15 minutes, maybe 16, I'm not sure if I can get it done. But if I don't start now, there's no way I'll get it done. So you rush inside, you wash the dishes, you make your bed, you vacuum the living room, and as dad and mom walk in, you know, you are just coming inside from having dropped off the trash out in the garbage bins. Again, now I don't know if you were like me, if you've had an experience like this. I've had some like this. I've also unfortunately had other ones where I was having so much fun outside or doing something else that I heard the car pull into the driveway and I didn't do any of that stuff. And in that moment, I realize I am not living in light of the fact that my parents are coming home and have asked certain things of me. Uh, This this kind of experience leads us to think about the fact that we have an authority that we may not see at all times, one that's constantly present. The analogy breaks down. Obviously, my parents aren't over top of me and can see all what's going on. But we have been left with a very specific calling to live a Christian life and walk with God according to his word. I think it's a normal experience for some of us, 
don't get me wrong, there are other ones where it ends up more poorly than the way that it went when I got it done in some of those times. What I'm trying to get to is this idea of living a certain way under authority and the constant ever-seeing eye of God. Part of the reason that God calls us to read his word, to open it up, or this morning even to sit under the preaching of the word, is that we would learn to realize what's really going on around us. We can't see God with our eyes. We can't uh, hear him audibly necessarily. And, and yet he calls us to the truth that he has revealed through his word. He calls us to regularly live our lives in light of his presence. In other words, although we do not see or hear God directly, right now he gives us his word to show us what is really going on. And you guys know this, right now we are living by faith. If there's no God, there's no reason to be here this morning whatsoever. We proclaim him, Jesus Christ and him crucified. There's no other reason for us to be here together this morning. We could do a lot more fun things in one sense if God doesn't exist. Why would we do this? So what we do to this morning, this morning is simply walk by faith, trusting that what God's word tells us is true. Now I start this way this morning because what Obadiah has done is shown us something. It's a vision. He is unveiling what's going on in reality. He's giving us, it says here in the first verse, a vision. He shows us what will happen to Edom and all these nations in the day of the Lord when it comes for them. But by doing so, he also has shown us who he is. It's not just about these specific events. In this revelation, in this vision, we get an understanding of who God is. He reveals himself. This morning, I'm simply going to try to lead us through this book of Obadiah one final time. I'm going to give us a brief summary of the entire thing. So if you're joining with us, you've never heard anything about Obadiah, it's probably a good one. You probably kind of get a little bit of a recap of the whole thing. But then what I want to do is pick up all these different pieces and make notes for us as we live the Christian life. What does it mean to live in light of Obadiah? As God has shown us what this is and who he is, we are now called to respond and obey. We need to think and observe how Obadiah's message is relevant for those of us who know Jesus the Messiah. Christ has come. He's inaugurated the kingdom. Uh, we know him. Obadiah's readers, think about this, they, they don't know Jesus Christ. They don't know that Jesus of Nazareth at all. They're waiting for the Messiah to come. So they don't know him. They believe God, but Messiah had not come. We stand looking at Obadiah in the light of Christ. It is part of our task then to see Obadiah's message, not only how it affected Judah, well that's important, but it's also important that we would see how it affects us Gentile Christians now in 2021, that we hope in God through Jesus Christ. So this is what I want to do. Let's start out with this high-level summary of Obadiah, and then we'll work through some of the pieces and kind of pull out some things that are helpful as we walk forward. As we do, I just want us to remember where we are and who we are speaking to, or who's speaking to us, and originally who this is speaking to. You know this, that, that provides the context and helps us understand why this would be important at all. Helps us understand that it's not a direct thing here for us today, exactly what's going on, and all these details make sense to us. I don't know about you guys, but we're not dealing with Edom down the street. Of course we're not. He's talking to a specific context here, right? That doesn't mean that we can't apply it. We, we have to, actually. But let's see where we're at here. Although there is still some debate, we talked about this at the introduction sermon to Obadiah, we're pretty sure that this prophecy falls right after the fall of Jerusalem, about 586 BC. We're talking about the Babylonian captivity. 
it seems best to play, place it right here with several other prophecies that speak about this very same concept, that speak about Edom and the destruction of Jerusalem together. I'm thinking of passages like Psalm 137.7 or Lamentations 4, 18 through 22. Or there's two spots in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 25, 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 35, 1 through 15. Uh, you don't have to go there right away. I'm just letting you know that all of these speak to the same reality. All of these places and times within Scripture talk about a time period of the fall of Jerusalem and of the people of, of Edom being those who are treacherous and enemies against Judah. For instance, I'll just pull up one. Lamentations 4.22. Listen to this. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, that's Jerusalem, the punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. He's talking about this exile. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. Now, if you've read Lamentations, you know it's a grievous book written most likely by the prophet Jeremiah. And he's documenting the fall of, of the city. And he's weeping and wailing about what's happened as they fall into Babylon. And as you see in this verse, and then in other ones that I gave you, that Edom is included as the enemy, a, a traitor, one who is deserving of punishment coming uh, to them at this event, this idea of destruction of Babylon. And although uh, Obadiah doesn't specifically name this event, we see as he continues to describe what's going on, that this seems to fit the best way possible. Now, the reason I bring this up is not just to give you a history lesson. The reason I bring this up is it's important for us to get the proper context. It helps us understand what God is saying, and it gives us insight into why he would be saying it to them. God speaks to his people, Judah, through a prophet Obadiah. And think about this. They are at their lowest point as a nation. As, as a gathered group, the tribes now, and these, as a nation, they've already separated from the northern tribes, but now as this nation goes on, they're at their lowest point. I mean, think about this. They have been crushed by Babylon. Their people have literally been killed in battle. Their homes have been destroyed. Their goods have been pillaged. Their territory has been invaded and divided and taken all away from them. Their families have been either thinned out or completely separated from one another. They are fugitives. They are slaves in a foreign land. Think, think about this. They probably don't even know the language to which they're entering into. They're completely devastated. They don't have any rights. And the truth is, they are absolutely pitiful. It's dark. It's awful. They are in a bad place. It's so bad, <laughs> it was almost as though someone said, we have been damned. We have been judged. It's almost as though God had judged them for their sin. Now, we know this is actually the reality. This is exactly what's happening here. We understand this to be so. It's to these people, though, a guilty, discouraged, beleaguered, judged people that the message of Obadiah comes. Think about this as our context. They're receiving Obadiah in the midst of their suffering. A message to the exiles who are in waiting. A message to God's people who really deserve the punishment that God is giving to them, that they are experiencing with no earthly hope of being set free from Babylon. There's no earthly hope whatsoever. It's into this context that Obadiah speaks and prophesies. In verse 1, we have a communication from God through Obadiah to his people. It's a vision, a revealing, an unveiling to see what God sees, what God knows, and more than that, what he wants his people to know. 
We understand that he doesn't give you everything. He is giving them a window into the truth of what's really going on. So he's revealing this to them. In that first verse, we sit in a council room. Do you remember this? We talked about a council room, a heavenly council room, with Obadiah hearing that God has sent a messenger to call the surrounding nations to war against Edom, wicked Edom. Then in verses 2 through 15, Obadiah gives us this discourse, this address that God made to the people of Edom. And in this address, God says the following. He says, despite your high and lofty position, and your high perspective of yourself, you think you're so great, I, God, will bring you down. He says that your destruction will be so thorough that your own strengths will be used against you. You are not what you think you are. And I'm doing this because you betrayed your brother instead of loving him. You betrayed him. You're treasonous. He also says to them, your judgment is sure because the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. Within this, you also remember he talks about lex talionis, that idea of divine justice, that idea of the law of retribution, that it applies to everyone equally. That's what God says to Edom in those first couple verses. Then we get to 16 through 21, the end of the book. And God transitions. It's a beautiful thing. He transitions from judgment. I hope you could even hear it when I was reading it. It transitions from judgment and difficulty and darkness to something wonderful the speaking about the day of the Lord and how it affects everyone. He begins by finishing the thought about judgment coming to everyone by telling us to consider his people, Judah. They were the ones that suffered the wrath of God on his holy mountain in Zion. They were the ones who were receiving the judgment that they deserved. But we realize that not, not just they will be the ones that get it, but all nations if God would judge even his own people, that he will judge all the nations. But it will be worse than what happened to his people on Zion because there will be no end to this judgment. What we see here is that God's people will experience something wonderful and great. Then we have this distinction between these nations, the all nations that are wicked, that hate God, and God's people. The contrast is this. We are hearing this the whole time. Judgment will come. It's coming. But salvation will come to Mount Zion. That's where 17 turns, right? The fugitives in Jerusalem will be holy. There will be a set-apartness to this mountain. They will dwell with God again in some way. His presence will be with them. It will be holy, he says. They will possess their inheritance. You see all this talk there. They will be landowners. Now, Israel will not be judged forever. He even says that Esau is called stubble, whereas Joseph and Jacob are is called a flame or a fire. Israel will rule or reign or even burn with God in consuming fire as they consume the wicked nations. God's people will again possess their land. And their border, as you can see at the end here, will stretch all the way back to where it was supposed to be in the days of Joshua and the conquest. By the end, we see this word come up, saviors or deliverers, these military heroes, these, we'd call them judges or, or deliverers, will come to Mount Zion to judge or rule Mount Esau, showing the victory of God's people and their dominance in a land that has give, was given to them by divine promise. And in the end, that by the end we get to here, we, we see Obadiah finishes by reminding his hearers that the kingdom doesn't belong to Esau. Guess what? It doesn't belong to Israel either. It doesn't belong to any earthly nations whatsoever. It belongs to the Lord. The last phrase tells us this. The kingdom will be 
the Lord's. This is the book of Obadiah. This is that, that big summary, as you said. This was the prophecy that came to Judah as they suffered God's judgment at the hands of the Babylonians and also their treacherous brother, Edom. Now, what I want to do then with the rest of our time is simply walk through some of the things that we've seen along the way. I want us to be able to see some of these things and recognize that it's not just a history lesson, but rather for us as we learn and grow that we can actually walk forward in joy, knowing these things to be true about God and understand what He requires of us. First, I just want you to remember who this is written to. We kind of started there at the beginning, but it would be easy if we were just sitting down to read this, we would think that this is written to Edom. I mean, it is directly addressed to them over and over again, right? And that's right. And then as we kind of get to verse 15 and 16, we realize that it might be, oh, maybe it's like to all nations that the, the day of the Lord is coming. But then when we get to the end, we realize he is really talking to Judah, to God's people. The prophet Obadiah is give, delivering this prophecy for God's people. It's his gracious communication, which means that there are things here that are necessary. It's not simply like, are you interested in reading this document that was sent to Edom about their destruction? No, 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 no. He is saying it's necessary for you to read this document. It tells you about who God is. It tells you about what he is like and what he requires of his people. Now, I start with this one because it makes us then, the rest of Obadiah, to actually pay attention because it's for us. It's not up to us whether we want to get interested in Obadiah or not. We must live and listen to what he has to say. Don't despise it. Receive it with joy as a gift from God. The second thing that I, I, I kind of noticed here, I, I really want to bring out, if all that is true, if this isn't just only for Edom, if it's for Judah, why would God give this communication to them? What's the intention? What is he doing in the book of Obadiah? I actually think that this is one of the most important questions, and so we're actually going to finish with this question at the end and wrap all these different pieces together and ask, why did he write or give us this prophecy? Until then, uh, until we get to the end then, let me give you some of the major themes and lessons that we need to learn. Some are about God. Others are about sin. Others are about his grace. Let me start here. The most clear thing that we see at the beginning of the prophecy and the end of the prophecy is the absolute sovereignty of God. He is in control. From the very beginning, we recognize that God is in control and it's his kingdom. In verse 1, we're introduced through Obadiah to an unveiling, a revelation, a vision from God. This isn't his coming out of his background and his study. No, no, no. God is speaking to him and revealing himself so that they might know him. Again, it's from God. Listen to verse 1, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We aren't just getting uh, some sort of insider information that if we had really good informants on the inside, they would tell us all about what's going on. No, no, no. We're getting a communication from God, the one who's in complete control. The very construction presupposes that we understand that something or, get it, ready, someone is far greater than us finite human beings, that he exists and that he wishes to communicate his truth to us. Therefore, the communication is built on the fact that God is over all things, that he knows all what's going on, and that he is in control. He's creator, sovereign over all of it. He has the right to withhold from information or, in Obadiah, to reveal it to us. He's over his own people. Of course he is. But actually, in this prophecy alone, we already realize that he's over Israel, but he's also over angels, these messengers. 
He's also over us. He's also over all earthly nations who think that they are independent kings. He is the one that turns their hearts. We see this back in Egypt. Remember this when we talk about God turning the heart of Pharaoh. We see him use Assyria and Babylon as tools in his hands. Our God is the sovereign over all. The very last verse of our text proclaims the sovereignty of God. The final verse in, in first final phrase in verse 21 says, the kingdom shall be the Lord's. There's this very clear understanding that despite what Israel might think about themselves and their own autonomy, they find themselves in exile. All things stripped away. They're not a nation anymore practically. It's as though they've been put into slave country and that's it. They're, they're, they're done, they think. Captured by Babylon and taken away. Also, in this prophecy, we see that the secure nation, not just like, a, 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 like the pitiable ones, the, 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 Judah, the Jade of Judeans, we also see mighty nations, in a sense, like Edom, come to their knees. They thought they were untouchable. Remember, at the, at the beginning of the prophecy, it says they live in the clefts of the rocks, the lofty dwelling. This is a very high and safe and secure place. But in verse 2, God says, Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. In other words, no matter how clever, no matter how wealthy, no matter how nimble you are, no matter how powerful you are, no matter how great your alliances and friendships and relationships are, God says in verse 4 that he will bring them down. And then listen to how he described this in verse 7 through 9. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread, we're talking about peace. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O T man, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. What we have here is this understanding that whether it's, we're talking about men or angelic powers, all who fight against this God, we realize that in the end, God has no real rivals. Think about this. I'm not saying there aren't people who war against, that don't war against God. We know this to be true. I'm saying that no one is his equal. He is sovereign over all. He does not have an equal or a group of powerful kings and kingdoms and resources that somehow equal the power of God. No way. He is sovereign, and the sooner we understand this, the sooner we will know joy and true security and contentment, no matter what we go through. So the first thing I just want to point out is that God is sovereign. The second thing is the justice of God, the divine justice that we see playing out here. I've heard it said that we ask the question, when we come to Obadiah, does God have enemies, those who he will judge? We see very clearly that he does, and we don't like that talk. It doesn't sound very good. I don't want to be on that end of this. Thus, we read the Bible and we want to respond rightly as the Bible calls us to do. We spent a lot of time talking about the Latin phrase lex talionis, which simply means the law of retribution. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. It sums up the fact that ultimate justice, ultimate justice is sure. It will happen. Although people get away with murder, I mean, literally, they get away with murder sometimes. Although people do their own thing, they live in a manner that's pleasing to themselves only at the expense of others, although they even exploit others and produce constant wickedness in their life, 
we learn that they will not be safe forever. We recognize that they may not see the consequences right away of their sin, but you can be sure that God will not be mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. Galatians 6, 7. It's tempting for us, especially in our day, especially when we hear a lot of this talk, it's tempting for us to think that we need to get all the justice done here and now and not let anything slip. And we certainly want to go after justice. It's a good and right thing. But there's this godlike complex as though we, it's in our hands alone. But Obadiah shows very clearly and understands that although you may be betrayed by your brother, the ultimate justice will be in the hands of of God. He will bring justice to every situation. Listen to verse 10. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. But then you have even more specific in verse 15. Listen, your deeds shall return on your own head. Lex talionis, this idea there will be divine justice. No one escapes. But in verse 15 also we see that it's not just judgment on Edom or people who are just as bad as Edom. That's what we would think, right? I'm not in this really, really bad category. That's not me. Look at verse 15. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. I mean, we even know there will be justice even in Judah. Despite our limited view and experience then, we can depend on God to bring about divine justice. These are some things that we notice about who God is. I want to turn, though, to the thing that highlights God's justice, sin. The thing that, that sticks out like a, like a sore thumb. It's terrible. I want to look here for a minute, the thing that sticks out to us. The prophecy that we have here about Edom brings up two terrible sins. Treason, or betrayal, and pride. Now, most of us, if we know anything about Obadiah, we probably knew about the treason part, that Esau was terrible to his brother and uh, these nations turned against the other nations, but maybe we don't consider pride quite as much. At first glance, they don't seem so bad. I mean, there's certainly, when we look through the Bible, there's some stories that are absolutely grotesque and disgusting. We think that's way worse sin. It may seem as though they're somehow worse, but I think you want to stay with me and see that these just aren't the regular old run-of-the-mill sins. In verse 3 through 4, we see the problem of pride. Listen to it, verse 3. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. I mean, Edom thinks that they are untouchable, as though God doesn't even exist at all. They act as though there's no such person as God, and as the, he doesn't see them. They disregard God. And who do they love and worship? Themselves. That's the best thing for them. And then let's see here this, this sin against this brother, this unbrotherless, this treason in verse 10. He says, Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. And you remember in verses 11 through 14 how he describes how Edom stood by as Jerusalem was pillaged, as they were destroyed, and as even Edom began to help in the looting. Even worse, they went to the crossroads, cut off the people, and took the survivors and gave them back to Babylon. They were traitors. They did not love their brother whatsoever. They loved themselves. Now, think about those two sins. And think about how Jesus answered the lawyer in Matthew 22. He asked, uh, the lawyer asked, what is the greatest commandment? 
To which Jesus responded, you shall love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, and mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Is the command that's like it, right? In the book of Obadiah, we have an example of a nation, Edom, who does exactly the opposite of the greatest two commandments. Instead of loving God, they treated him as though he didn't even exist. They loved themselves more than anybody else. Instead of loving their neighbor, they abhorred and treated their brother shamefully. They gave him over to destruction, pillaging all they could from what was left over from the Babylonians. I call us, though, to be very careful, brothers and sisters. Remember that Jesus said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We may think that we aren't like Edom, but be very careful. It's possible that our pride and our unbrotherliness show itself in other more subtle ways. The very thing that Jesus said was the most important thing to follow, Edom was the antithesis of, and we see what happens to them. They are judged. So Obadiah teaches us to flee from arrogance, pride, and rather in humility, love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. He also teaches us to show love to our neighbors, to one another. Yes, the body of Christ, but even here we see it's even broader than that. We know it's not just our physical siblings, right? It's not just about love your brothers and sisters who are in your physical family. This is broader than that. It goes all the way to how Jesus defined neighbors in the parable of the Good Samaritan. All men are our neighbors. Now, another observation that I think is worth considering here uh, as we kind of round out is found in the second half of Obadiah and going back to the introduction, talking about Obadiah's role as the prophet. So I'm going to ask you to kind of consider this for a minute. I'll first go to the end of Obadiah, verse 17 through 21. In verse 17, he says, But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Now, we love this. It's a turn. It's a good turn to salvation and grace. In the midst of judgment, we find God's grace that's based on his character. But this shouldn't surprise us. Remember, actually, when I did the introduction to Obadiah, we learned that the prophets speak as covenant mediators. Remember using that term? What they're doing is communicating what has already been said back in the Pentateuch. None of this is necessarily new. But now the prophets bring it into real-life situations and put meat on the bones and help them understand what's happening to them. In Obadiah, we know that God's people have experienced judgment. They have sinned, and God has brought punishment upon them. He promised that he would do this in Leviticus 26. If you have a chance, you need to look at Leviticus 26 and see the incredible progression. The first has is, if you will obey, there will be blessing. If you disobey, there will be punishment. But what we may not remember is that there's a turn in the end. There's something else there, even after those who would dishonor God and disobey Him and suffer the consequences of their sin. He promised that He would do something that we see in the end of Obadiah. I want you to listen to me. I'm going to read Leviticus 26, 40-45. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery, that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I'll remember my covenant with Jacob. I'll remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I'll remember the land. 
Verse 44, yet for all that, when they are in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them, neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God. But I will give for them, I, I will give for their sake, but I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. That's the Pentateuch. That's Leviticus. That's exactly what he said he would do. Remember that God is gracious to bring his people then, you and me guys, to repentance, to a place where we confess our sins when we're confronted with how wicked we really are. And we, by God's grace alone, want to turn in humility and bow before God. He doesn't just save us and keep us wicked for people for a long time. He continually works to grow his people, that he will fulfill his covenant, and he will make us his own. Yes, we have sinned against him. Yes, they have, have been brought, he brought Israel into judgment because they disregarded God's rule. But yes, he will provide salvation for his people. He will be true to all of his promises. I mean, what assurance. What a resounding call to hope that he will not disregard his people and break his covenant with them. So the prophets, including Obadiah, proclaimed that God will be faithful to his covenant and that he will make his people into those who repent and follow him with joy. In all this, then, he gives us the greatest blessing that you and I could ever receive. And it's not the land of Israel. It's not these borders here. No, it's better than that. It is the one who would come from Israel. It is true Israel. It is God himself with us. It is Emmanuel. We're talking about the one who came in a lowly manger. His gift shows us itself in how he cares for the people in washing the feet of the disciples. It pays for that which we couldn't at the cross. This gift proves his divine ability as the stone is rolled away from the tomb. He is powerful and able. And we experience God's salvation better than Judah ever did when they moved back to the land. We experience it in Christ Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. God is with us. And we rejoice to know that not only did God return Judah to their land, although we rejoice in that, not only did he give them back their territory, and not only did he destroy Edom, but he has shown us that the kingdom truly is the Lord's, and that this kingdom has come in the person of Jesus Christ. No, he has, uh, he has not brought it all to completion yet. Has anyone seen this week and struggle? Not all is right yet. He has not returned. We know this. We long for that day. We long for when he will take all nations and all that will flow to Mount Zion in beauty and holiness. And we, we long for the day when King Jesus will make plain what we already know to be true to all the nations, that God has no rivals. He will crush all sin and sadness. Until then, we look to every one of his promises and know that he will not break one of them. Do you see how this is a, a boon to our confidence in who God is? This brings us back to the initial question then that I said I would try to answer from the beginning. Why is this prophecy given to Judah? And why is this prophecy given to us? What's its intended result to us? Uh, I, I talked about earlier the context in which this goes into. A suffering, exiled people who are discouraged, who have sinned against God, who are pitiful. 
And this is the message that comes to them. We see, therefore, these exiles in a weary land, and us, we recognize as exiles, also in a real, a, exiles in a weary land, that we ought to be encouraged that God is on the throne, that he is just, that he will destroy those who do not submit to him. In the end, God will win. We should also, of course, avoid the sins of Edom. We should humbly love God with our heart, soul, and mind, and love our neighbor as ourself. But I want to talk about this exile idea and who we are. Remember that Peter was the one who called us this in 1 Peter 2.11. He said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which, war, which wage war against your soul. I'll ask you then, what sins are beating you right now? What do you think that you have no way of escaping? What struggle and suffering are you experiencing? Perhaps in your own sinfulness, perhaps in your physical struggles, perhaps in your families. What thing is making it so dark right now that you are like these exiles in Babylon and it feels like you have no hope? Can I just remind you that God wins? Can I remind you that he will bring justice? Can I remind you in the midst of that, if we will turn to him, confessing, repenting, and in humility, asking him to be God and our God, that he will bring us salvation. Not only uh, like in our, in our salvation experience on, the, on Jesus on the cross, which is true, that's the center for the beginning of all of it. That he will fulfill every one of his promises. That it only begins there that he will fulfill all of these things, that the enjoyment of him is what he gives us. He gives us himself. Brothers and sisters, remember that all is not lost. Just like these exiles and the struggle and the pain and the suffering they were going through, Christ has suffered. He suffered far more than we have. He is with us. We're not alone in our sufferings. Our darkness will not be forever. There will be answers. As a believer, what you experience in this life is not judgment. It may be discipline, it may be a refiner's fire even, it may be chastisement, but it is not the judgment that, that Edom faced. Remember this, because God's cup of wrath has not been poured out on us. We know that the cross, Jesus Christ took that cup and drank it down to the final sip. Although he asked if there was another way, he was willing to drink, drink the cup of God's wrath for his people. Guys, this is our God. This is wonderful and beautiful because we stand now as recipients knowing how God did it. He did it through Jesus. And now as we are in him, we have fellowship with the Father. In our suffering, in our sin, in our struggle, look to Christ. Look to the one who's fulfilled the promises and who will fulfill all of God's promises to us. He is our, he is the, he is our great redeemer. He is the suffering servant for his people. And he is our great light even in the midst of our darkness. Do not look to God in some nebulous, ancient, philosophical way. He showed us real, historical, physical love in his son, Jesus Christ, the Jesus of Nazareth. So I call us, again, it's, it's the same thing every week, right? Believe it's true. Love Christ. Respond as one who has been saved by our Savior Jesus. Lastly, I'll finish with this. That's, that's enough for me, but I, I just got to give this too. This is really good. In the face of divine justice, think about all that Edom had to be concerned about. Think about the, 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 the sovereign one who's fully divine, 
who has all justice in his hands, who is the one to mete out judgment against all nations, who sends one messenger to all the people around and say, rise up, bring him to battle, let's destroy Edom, and they do it like this. Do you not realize that we should be terrified of this God and that all men should? There should be a holy terror of this our God. He is sovereign over all things, will bring justice to the peoples. For those who know him and believe this, this is, the, this is the paradox. There's hope. For those who hear this message, though, and say, that can't be true. <laughs> I'm not dealing with that God. Or if he's true, I, I hate him. I don't want anything to do with that. Those are the ones that will suffer eternal judgment. And so I unapologetically say, if you're here today and do not know God, please turn to him. Because he is a terrifying, all-powerful God. And the truth of the matter is that he calls us to fear him. The only one, though, who can inspire this type of fear and judgment is the only one that can save us from that fear and judgment. The other thing he calls us to is hope. What we have here in Obadiah is divine justice that will bring judgment to all the nations and all peoples who will not repent and love the Lord their God, their heart, soul, and mind. But in the very same prophecy, we have the hope of salvation of deliverance from what we deserve. I think the prophecy of Obadiah is a perfect situation that makes us read Psalm 147, 11 properly. I want you to listen to the two things, fear and hope. Ready? But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. The only one who can bring this judgment is the only one who can save us from that judgment. And so we recognize that it's the Lord who takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those who hope in his steadfast love. In Obadiah, we properly learn of those, the one that we must, that we must fear as we see God for who he is. But the one we fear is the only one who can save us from his eternal wrath. And it's, therefore, it's only God who can give us salvation. Only in God, his son, Jesus Christ, can we hope in steadfast love of God. And so Obadiah closes out showing us who God is, a God of complete control, divine justice, willing to mete out judgment because it's against his holy character, but who offers salvation for his people. Specifically, we know that is through the person of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, hope in him. Fear the Lord and hope in his steadfast love. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your grace. Oh Lord, we need your grace. We ask for you to pour out. Would you humble us? Would you make us your own and help us to, to learn that we wouldn't put a stiff arm up, but Lord, that you would bring us to humility and that you would pour your grace out on us. That we would learn what it means to be those people who respond to you in joy and obedience and thanksgiving. I pray that you would help us today as we now go into the rest of our week, this afternoon, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, all throughout the week. I ask for help. I pray that you would help us to see the truth, that you are God, that we would not be like the kid who forgets his parents are away. But Lord, we would regularly look into your word and know you and respond as one who lives in light of the presence of God. We thank you for your grace and ask for more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.